Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 as we continue on here this morning. Hmm. We're gonna pick right up around verse 22. If you're with us this morning, just to kind of take a few minutes just to bring you into the context. You know, we've been going, obviously, line by line through the whole Bible, but specifically the book of Acts. And as we've been watching, initially it was Peter and, you know, watching how God was moving. Then we began the focus right around chapter 9, and that area began to shift to Paul. Well, his Roman name, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, right? Paul. And we've been watching as he's been going through, and we, we see that as we got to chapter 15, this big conflict arose. And, and primarily the conflict was actually over circumcision, I mean, that, that was the big deal. And, and specifically, if you look at chapter 15, verse 1, it was really about salvation. You know, the, the Judaizers had come and felt like uh, they needed to add Jesus plus something, right? Not that, that, not that we don't see that today, right? You know, we, we see that same thing today, don't they? Jesus plus something. What we're going to learn as we read and we move into chapter 16 as well, Jesus is everything. There is nothing else. It's always been Jesus alone, faith. And so as we move into the second half here, where James left us and he had spoke what was good and he, in verse 20, said, look, you know, I want you to abstain from these four things, four things, right? From things polluted by idols, right? From sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. Now, often we take the things strangled and blood and kind of put that in one kind of kosher grouping, if I could say it that way but they're four separate things. And we talked last week about what the significance was. And, and really, you know, I went through and I, you know, I explained, I exegeted and said, look, you know, polluted by idols, where did you go to the meat market? It was at the temples. That's, that's where the meat markets were because there were tons of animal sacrifices there. So people would come and pick up the meat. Now for the Gentile, that wasn't necessarily a problem, pagan or not, because they were like, hey man, that's, that's like flame mignon or whatever. You know, that's good eating. I'm going to eat that, right? And most of us here would have been like, absolutely, bring it on. But our Jewish brothers and our sisters, you know, they had grown up under a kosher law, right, under ceremonial practices. And if they would have gone and seen you kind of loading up, how many remember the Flintstones? Remember that? That big beef. Oh, man, I'm thinking that big beef, throw it over your shoulder. Come on, it's dinner tonight. So, you know, they, they take this meat. And if they had seen you leave the temple with that and you were walking home, they'd go, I'm sorry, I can't eat at your place. Well, what do you mean? Don't you know that meat was sacrificed to an idol? Well, I don't care who was sacrificed. It's not the real God. You know the real God. Why are we, what are we monkeying around for? Let, let's dig in. Cook that thing on the Barbie, right? That would have been the problem, right? They, it would have stumbled them, right? So we, so we talked about that. And then things strangled, right? Well, if you look at, well, I skipped one, for sexual morality. Now, again, this isn't just obviously the idea. If you go back to Leviticus and you understand the sexual morality behind this, this isn't just speaking about sexual morality. We know that's obviously wrong and against God's teaching. But spe- this is, what are we talking about? Food, kind of ceremonial practices here, right? And in Leviticus, as you go down and you follow it, it's following the same thing. Things strangled. So let's talking about, or, you know, when we, we even take from blood or even sexual morality, these are all ceremonial practices. When we're talking about sexual immorality, they're talking about practices that would have been lewd to the, to the, uh, the Jews of that day. So what am I talking about? Just a simple example, marrying your second cousin, okay? Marrying your second cousin. Something like that, obviously, to a Jew would have been foreign because God had commanded against that, that you were not to marry your close kin like that because he knew what that meant, Right, it was going to break down the DNA and genetic disposition like that. Okay, so he had warned against that. 
So if they saw that and they saw something like that, they might go, well, that's off. What's going on here? You're practicing things and yet you're claiming to be followers of Jesus, followers of the way. And then we also talked about things strangles, right? A little bit about, you know, the idea there that they had kosher practices. It wasn't just what you ate. Remember we talked about that? Dairy was not allowed to be mixed with meat, chicken. Although, I don't know about you, I never saw chicken in milk. You know, I mean, other than when you bread it. But I mean, I never saw a chicken nurse, right, or give milk. But, but somehow they, they laid that trip. If you go over to Israel today and you go to a kibbutz or you're going to eat and you sit there and you have butter on your table with bread, guess what meat, if I can use the term meat, you would have on the table? What would it be? Fish, pesce, right? You'd have fish. You wouldn't have beef. You wouldn't have chicken because that would be ceremonial and clean. They'd actually come over and start yelling at you in many different languages, right? You'd be trying to figure out which one. They're t- Is it Hebrew or What's going on here, you know? But it would be a big deal and they'd get out, right? It's a big deal. So, we see here that things strangled like that, and they're talking about the ceremonial practice, the way the food is even being prepared. And then with blood. Now, this is very simple because how many people like blood sausage or piggy pudding, right? So I got one guy that's like, yeah, man, give me some of that. Everybody else is like, no. <laughs> I'll eat anything. I don't mind. So they turn around and... Uh, they come over and they say, yeah, man, let's get some of that blood sausage. And the Jewish brothers and sisters are like, ah, uh, no. How about the piggy pudding? No, no, this is not a good idea. What is this all about? Why did James lay this out? What are we talking about here? A heart issue, right? What is he saying? He's saying, look, for the furtherance of the gospel, do we have the ability under grace, you and I, all of us, can we eat and partake of these things? Absolutely, right? We know it's not a stumbling block to us. We're not under that. We've been set free that way. We, we have the ability to eat and enjoy that way. But what is he talking about for the Jewish brothers and sisters that would have come alongside and they would have witnessed that? That could have been a stumbling block for them. That could have created division. And so what James is saying, for the betterment of your brother, for the betterment of your sister, would you not put love first? Would you not put love first that way? And that's what we see here. And and then what's going to happen is now we're going to read into our text today in verses 22 and through the remainder of really chapter 15 as we move into the latter half here of chapter 15. We're going to see a letter being drafted. Now this is very important because remember, we're talking about salvation here. And last we left off in chapter 15, verse 1, those Jews that didn't come from the Jerusalem council but came from Judah and Jerusalem like that and they made their way down. They came in and saying, no, you need to be circumcised. And they were tripped up by that. Wouldn't you be if somebody came into you and said, you're not saved right now, you need to do this as well? Wouldn't that wreck you? Now, you've got to remember, they're probably gone two plus months as they went up to Jerusalem and to council here. We believe it's about two months, months. So these, you know, these men and women are sitting there going, are we saved? Are we not saved? What's going on? What's happening here? Right? Because they would have had to travel all the way back. Where were they? Antioch. They would have had to go all the way back from Antioch, back to Jerusalem. They would have gathered and met together, prayed together like that. And then they're going to have to send a letter back saying, hey, it's just as the Holy Spirit had led. There's nothing else we need to lay upon you. But we would ask in love that when you're with your Jewish brothers and sisters, that while you have liberty, your liberty doesn't become an offense. Okay? So we'll begin in verse 22. Then it, then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. 
So these men, here's what's happening. Basically, these men that are leaders within the church and the Jerusalem councils, elders, if you would, that way, they turn around and they meet together and they all agree. But because they all agree, they know that if Barnabas and Paul would go back to Antioch and say, see, it's as we told you, what would they do? Well, we don't trust you. How do we know? You are already here espousing this doctrine anyway. How do we know you're just not espousing a doctrine of a, a false god or of a false teaching? So, so this is wisdom. Do you see how the Holy Spirit moves? One, it's unity, because you have men initially disagreeing at the beginning of this. But then there's this unity through the Holy Spirit that comes. And part of this unity also gives wisdom as the leading of the Holy Spirit. And says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to send you an escort with two men from the council. And we're also going to give you a sealed letter with a stamp or something on it showing that, that we have validated this. This is our teaching, that there would be nothing else laid upon you. Enjoy rejoice. You and I today, the reason that we don't have the ceremonial law or the practices, this passage we're reading right here, it changed everything for the Jew and Gentile alike, that nothing else would have to be laid a trip on another man or woman, that it was Jesus and belief in him alone that brings salvation. Praise God for that. So they write this letter, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, part of their first missionary journey. Greetings, since we have heard that some who went out of us have troubled you with words, right, who were not with us. In other words, look, they went out from us, but they've troubled you with these words, and oh, by the way, we didn't send those other guys. That's what they're really saying here unsetting your souls, saying you must be circumcised. That was the issue, but we know there was other things that were trying to lay on them legality-wise, law-wise, and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. False teaching that way. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men with you, our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So now what are they also doing in this letter? They're authenticating Barnabas and Paul and saying they are sent from us. And what they say, they speak for the whole council. Men, the apostles that walked and sat at the feet of Jesus Christ. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these unnecessary things that you abstain from the things offered by idols or to idols, from blood, from the things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, who wrote this? I talked about this last week. I said, Bibereans, go in and search. Who wrote this? We can tell because as we study the epistles, there's something called textual criticism. It's where we can look at the exact writings of the Apostle Paul or other apostles that way or gospel writers and narratives, and we can look and we can pull things out of it. I have a belief of a certain individual that wrote this. Look at it with me again, verses 23. There's only one person throughout all the Bible that follows this initial introduction this way. Paul always began, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and he would go into his epistle and letter. But there's one gentleman specifically that uses the word greetings, and we see it through his writing. Anybody wanna throw up a, a guess? Who? Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. Some of you are going, well, pastor, let's get on with it. That's great, but 
I love, I, I find studying the Word of God to be absolutely enjoying and fun. James chapter 1, verse 1. If you're in your Bible, you get to Hebrews, go one more book. James chapter 1, verse 1. If you get to Peter, you, you've gone too far. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad, what's he say next? Greetings. It's in his introduction. It's the way he writes. So I believe, and you be Bereans, you can form your own opinion on this. That's okay. I believe James actually is the one that sort of, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned this letter that way, along with, obviously, Silas there and, and what have you, and, the, and you know Judas, who is also named Barsabbas. I believe that. But isn't that interesting, that just looking at the writings, we can learn so much about who authored and who God used and what a privilege. And again, who is James again? He's the half-brother of Jesus Christ, right? Right? The biological through his, his mother, but not through, through his father that way. So he writes this letter, and, and yes, you know, I understand that in verse 28 and really 29, he begins to risk the same four things. He changes the order. But does it change the meaning of what we've already covered, that he said these four things? And we talked about that. And again, what was the whole point of it? One, it was to lay nothing additional Nothing additional on them. And notice in verse 28, how were decisions made? By the leading of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, everything tested in the word of God, led by the Holy Spirit. This is how they made decisions. What a wonderful example here. What a wonderful example of peace and unity. And if you've ever been to the Middle East and you know uh, men and they can be content, you know, and I'm not trying to knock the Middle East, hey, we can be this way today. But there can be a contention when you're arguing or debating or even, even when you go to the market and you're trying to get food and you're in the Middle East or you go to Israel and it's, you know, I'll give you five, you give you two. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a whole rhythm. It's enjoyment, for the, I, I think, for the, for the people there. We, we'd sort of joke about it. But, but for this to be this unity that everybody would come together that way. And I think this, this also shows that, as I read this, it shows to me that the idea of our liberty should never keep somebody from following Jesus. You know? You know, we have liberty, but it should never keep someone from following Jesus Christ. And I just think that, you know, just explains the right heart here. I think it's a heart after Christ. You know? Let's continue on in verse, uh, verse 30 here. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. So they were left, they took the letter, and they're going to come. Now, as we read in the really the latter half of chapter 15, we're going to see a couple things that you and I, after they just came together in unity, we watched amazing moving of the Holy Spirit where these men disagreed. You need circumcision. You need this. You need that. No, you need Jesus alone and belief in him. Okay, and God moves and the Holy Spirit moves and there's unity. And yet, as we continue on through this passage, as they make their way to Antioch, Paul is going to get a moving of the Holy Spirit again and he's going to say, you know what? We're going to go on V2. We're going to go on our second missionary journey here. Let's go back and strengthen the brothers and the sisters that way, right? The, the flock. But let's go back and stra- strengthen the elders, the brothers there. And as he gets ready to do this, there's going to come up a contention. We're going to see an argument. Now, I know you're looking at this and going, how do you reconcile that? We see the Holy Spirit moving and we see this unity. Then we see these two men. I mean, are these not men of the faith? I mean, Barnabas, what's his name? I mean, we call him the son of encouragement. 
And what do we and what do we think of Paul? I mean, Paul's this, I mean, wow, this man of the faith. I mean, here he is, he's beaten, he goes through all these trials, shipwrecked and everything, and he's in prison and he's not crying for mommy, you know? He's sitting there and he's just like, you know, Lord, I trust your leading and and it's been settled in my soul. It is well. And yet we're gonna see these two men, and I and I God forgive me and and Paul, forgive me, and Barnabas, but I am glad the Lord captured this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because we can see what happens when men, regardless of who you are, get so rigid to the point of where you and a brother can disagree and you don't allow the Holy Spirit to speak. And yet, in spite of that, God will move. And in spite of our shortcomings, God will move and serve and live. So as we continue, so when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitudes, so good-sized church there, together they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. I can imagine. Oh man, I can't wait to get to heaven and watch back the DVD on that one. Can you imagine as they walk back into Antioch, two months later potentially, all of these men and women kind of sitting on their hands. Okay, are they coming back? What's going on? What did they decide? Do we, you know, we, we made our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Do we really need to be circumcised like these other guys coming from Israel? You know, Jerusalem like that way? And they're excited, but they're nervous. What, you know, what are, the, what are they going to lay on us? And they walk in and they say, hey, we got great news If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you repented from your sin, you're a born-again believer in Christ. Welcome into the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine just the peace and rest for this city, for these people, for Antioch? Can you imagine? I mean, do you remember when you got saved that first night you went home and you laid your head down on your pillow? Everything changed. No matter what happened, No matter the next morning, if you would have woke up and went out and unfortunately a car would have ran a stop sign and hit, it didn't matter, did it? Because when you're in the will of God, you're invincible until such a time in which he carries you home or takes you home. But up until that point, what do you have to fear if you're being led by the Spirit? What a great sense of just, thank you, Jesus, this peace that comes over you. Talk about the anxiety melting away. Talking about it. You, know, you with me on this? I mean, do you remember this feeling? And, and if you're not there yet, I want to encourage you in this passage today. That awaits you if you will let go and release and give it to Jesus and trust his leading. He desires that for you. He desires his perfect peace, a peace that actually surpasses even your intellect, even your understanding. Philippians 4, 6, that's what he wants to give us. That's what he wanted to, Go there. So I, of course they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets, also what did they do? They exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. When we come together here, look, I, I, I know pastors can lay guilt trips and browbeat. I never try to do that. But as the Holy Spirit leads, when we come here, are we others focused? Do we walk through these doors and realize that we have a calling on our lives to encourage our brothers and sisters sitting next to us, all around us, for the work of the ministry, for the equipping of the saints, for the perfection until Christ, Ephesians 4. That's the call, not only of a pastor, an under-shepherd, but that's the call of every man and woman 
for one another. Now again, I'm not browbeating anybody here. But when we come through these doors, sometimes we're on the receiving end. You with me? Sometimes we bring a lot of weakness and he brings the strength. And then sometimes we come in and, and God's done a work in our hearts the night before and maybe we got a good night's sleep and we, we, we walk in and we, we see somebody else that needs a little bit of a pick-me-up in the Lord. And we come and say, can I, just, can I just pray with you, brother? Can I just pray with you, sister? Do we do that? That's, that's sanctified. That's sanctified. That, that, that's what God desires. We can get so busy doing so many things and forget that this is our Jerusalem. This is our home. We come in, we get encouraged, strengthened, and then we go out and we reach the lost. But if our tank's on empty, spiritually speaking, what are we going to do? We need to be encouraged. We need to encourage others. That's why he says, love, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's why he told us to do that. And he said, and like this, I also give you what? Love, you know the passage? Love others as you would what? Love yourself. And if you do this, you do well. You do a good thing. So we see this encouragement. And we see Judas and Silas with these many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, right? So... We're not sure exactly how much time, but they're there for maybe a few weeks, whatever's going on. They sent back greetings from the brethren to the apostles. They write back to the Jerusalem council and saying, all is well. Because I imagine the apostles also were going, what's going on down there? There's this great plant. What's happening? You know, everyone's excited because we know that souls are being saved. People are being set free. That's why we're excited as we move into this new building, new community. We, we, we're excited for what God's going to do. We know he's already gone ahead of us. We're just going to walk in it. We're just going to walk in what he's already done. Hallelujah. However, it seemed, good in, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Now, I wonder what was happening in Silas's mind. Because if you read ahead in chapter 14, you know what's going to happen. He's going to actually come alongside Paul because there's going to be a disagreement with Barnabas there. But Saul, I mean, excuse me, but Silas at this point, he must have been thinking to himself, Lord, I know you put a calling on my life. You've read me an elder of the Jerusalem Council. You, you even said, Lord, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we know you're a prophet. We know Silas is a prophet here. It said he was. He had received revelation, direct revelation from God that way. And he received a calling. And he knew he had that calling on his life. But it seemed like, I imagine when he had heard this, he's going, God, what do you need me here for? You got Paul, you got Barnabas. What do you need me for? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've been called by the Lord. He's put a calling on your life for ministry, maybe to be an under-shepherd somewhere, maybe to, maybe to come alongside, to plan a Calvary chapel. Who knows what he's got? He's got so many things he's putting on the hearts of his people at all times. Work here, work different places. And you're sitting there going, Lord, I, I, know, I hear you. I'm not crazy. I know you've aligned this. But I, I don't see the next step. And I don't even understand where I'm at. How could it be, God? You have these two men. They're already doing that. What, 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 what could I possibly do, Lord? Right? You with me? That, that's, what's, there's where, that's where Silas is at. He's going, I don't get it. But God knew. And God had already begun to answer. And he had already begun to prepare the heart of that man for the work he had called him to. Weeks, months before he would do it, for a journey that he was going to go on with Paul and two others that will join him. And we need encouragement when that happens. When I have a brother comes in and says, the Lord called me, 
I love it. I sit there and I want to encourage that brother because I know what it's like. Paul, 13 years before he went out. Paul, 13 years he was called. He was tent making before he actually got his calling to actually go out when Barnabas came back and got him. Seven years, I went and I watched that. You talk to different men in the ministry. Some are 20, some are five. But God knows the timing and he's aligning things for a perfect timing just as he aligned Silas here. I want that to be encouragement to men here, to women also. You may be called to come along certain side of women, other pair of ministries, other things you're serving in, and it's just not aligning yet. It doesn't seem like it's, it's, it's coming together as a sanctified plan. God is moving. Don't you lose hope. Don't you lose encouragement. That's the lie from the pit of hell from the devil. If Silas had believed that and left, what would happen? Paul would have said, maybe, I don't know, should I, should I really listen to Barnabas? I know the Holy Spirit's telling me this. That's a good word, encouragement. We need to remember that. We stay the course until God confirms something different in his word. So he exhorted and strengthened them. And after they had, like we read there, sent back greetings from the apostles, however, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. God's calling is a blessing. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many, with many others also. And now we're going to see the beginning of his second missionary trip here. If you're taking notes in your Bible, you mark the first missionary trip, second missionary trip, verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, you know, I was uh, taking a shower or maybe a bath. I don't know what they, you know, I was getting clean. And, you know, the Lord, I was praying in my quiet time. And the Lord came to me and, boy, he stirred my heart for these men, these women that I had visited. And so it says, then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we had preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Isn't that a caring? That's a pastor's heart. You, you, you believe you got a call for, to be a pastor? Look, I always tell guys, and, I'll, and, and forgive me for those that may, Lord, I'm, you know, that's not my calling. Okay, praise the Lord. Well, I'll tell you, guys, I'm going to look at you with the eyes right now. Look at me with your eyes, the guys that are called by the Lord that way. If you're called to be a pastor, your heart is for the people, for the sheep. It's not about teaching the word. You spend five minutes, you know, up or whatever, an hour up here. This is like 5% of your time. You know, 60, 40% of your time studying to be up here. You know what the other percent of your time spent doing? Loving those God sends into your, your care. That's what a pastor does. Otherwise, you're a teacher and go, go to a seminary somewhere. Go to a seminary and teach. But if you have a calling of a pastor, you have a calling and a heart for the people. And you love the people. And you're going to die to yourself for the people. That's what it looks like. That's why in Zechariah, when we read in the end times, the last days of the days we're living, I believe today, we see what happened. We see the, the pastors of that day, our day, I believe. What are they doing? It's all about them and what they can get. And then what happens is when things get tough and oppression and affliction, what do they do? They abandon the flock, and then what happens? It scatters. Zechariah chapter 11. And I believe we're living in those last days. And we're seeing it happen today. But we don't need to grow faint. We have good hope because the Lord is calling men to stand in the gap. We need strong men that will stand in the gap for Jesus Christ because it's a great privilege. It's a great privilege and calling. 
So as he said, let us go back, you know, his heart for the other people. Verse 37, now Barnabas was determined, circle that. So Barnabas, he's determined. You get a guy that's determined, hang on now. He says, Barnabas is determined to take with them John called Mark. And, and, and he writes it out here just so we're not misunderstanding John Mark and who it is. Because sometimes in the New Testament, Mark, some, you know, he's the gospel writer of Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Some people call him John. You know, he'd called him John before in the Acts. And, we're, and just the Holy Spirit's making sure we know who we're talking about. We're talking about John Mark here. And you remember on his first missionary trip, what happened? He left them, right? He went back. We're not told why he left them, but he left them. So Paul is sitting there going, look, hey, I like this guy. I even might even love this guy, but he's not coming with us on the second missionary journey. He, he abandoned us on the first, right? He's holding on to that. Barnabas being the son of encouragement, we also know that he's what? He's his cousin, right? We know that. He's his cousin. Colossians tells us that. And so, as we, as, I think it's Colossians chapter 4. Uh, be a brain, go back and check that. But I believe it's Colossians chapter 4 where it says he's his cousin. It also says at that point, Paul tells us later on that he found good use for John Mark and that he realized he was called into the ministry and how he, his heart had changed. But at this point, you see, he's determined, right? Barnabas is determined. But Paul, circle this word, insisted. So we see it here. Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia. That's, that's the area of Perga. Okay, that's what they're talking about here. So we got a guy that's determined, and we got a guy that's insisting. What, what do you got there? You got a lock, right? You got a, you got a lock. Nobody's moving. I'm determined. Well, I'm insisting. Well, you know, I can, hear the, I can hear the conversation in my mind's eye right now. Barnabas is saying, hey, what about guys? Don't they deserve second chances? Paul? Can you imagine that conversation? Don't they deserve second chances? Paul? And Paul goes, absolutely, Barnabas, and we want to be encouraging. You know, you could just see between determined and insisted. Between, you know, I can only imagine, but, but we know that it's going to get heated. And it says that what? That they had not gone with them to the work. Okay, verse 39, then the contention became so sharp. What does that mean? It's heated, man. It's heated that they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Wait, wait, did you just catch that? Wait a minute. These two men of the faith, they, 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 you know, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, man, goes after Paul 13 years later, right? 11 years, somewhere between there, grabs him, pulls him back. We got, we got Paul who's got this, you know, Damascus Road experience. And all this is going down, and these one's insisting, and the other... And they go through this whole thing, and all of a sudden, Barnabas says, you know what? Forget it. We're going to Cyprus. Now, where was Barnabas from? Cyprus. He was from that area. So what he's saying is, hey, I'm going back to our hometown region area, and we're going to witness and disciple there. And I'm going to take John Mark with me. What just happened? That's division. Did you see that? That's division. You, you with me? They just got together in the Jerusalem Council and they can decide that salvation through the leading of the Holy Spirit and how many men are there and yet we got these two guys and they can't get along on whether John Mark should come. Do, do you not see the, you know, do you see how the devil works? You see how he works? He doesn't care. He'll come right in there and he'll try to establish division. He, he doesn't care. He'll come from the inside. We were just in men's study yesterday and we were in the book of Nehemiah. 
And if you go back in Nehemiah chapter 2 and we're reading, and one of the things I was talking about leadership with the guys, and Nehemiah is a great leader, you know, you look at that. And one of the things I was sharing with the guys is I said, you look at this. Here Nehemiah goes out, you know, obviously the leading of the Holy Spirit on the king there, you know, he wasn't a believer, Art, I call him Artaxerxes, Art. He leads him, the whole thing goes on, and then what happens? So we see Art there, he's like, all right, go, and he says, I see you're sad, I see your dispositions, you know, you could have been killed for that in that day. He turns around and he's going back, and what happens? We see two guys all of a sudden arrive on the scene, just as Nehemiah is going out to rebuild the wall, to establish the temple, the whole thing, Right? And we see these two guys. One is from the outside, and he's going to attack from the outside. The other one, Tobiah, right? He's actually an Ammonite. What, what, what line is he from then? The line of Lot, right? He's from the inside, right? Because he's even in, married within to the family of the Jews that way. So he's married in. So we see the attack coming from the outside, and we see the attack coming from the inside. Why would we be surprised? We shouldn't be. So as Paul is seeing this, and we see this, discon- we see this division here. We begin to see outside forces and inside forces coming into this. Now, who's right? Who's right? We don't know. We don't know. They're both wrong. Division. They allowed themselves to be you know, moved by the flesh that way. But is God limited by that? Absolutely not, because we're going to read exactly what happens in chapter 16. God knew what was coming. Our circumstances change. Our God never does. Our God never does. So it says, but Paul chose Silas. Now Silas is going, ah, now I get it. The calling was real. I wasn't losing my mind. There is a purpose. The timing of this all worked out. Now it makes sense. But up until that point, Silas is probably going, what am I doing here, right? You got Paul, you got Barnabas, they're doing their thing as the leading of the Lord. And Silas is now, you know, he's encouraging the brothers. He's finding out ways to be valuable to the Lord for service, encouraging one another like that. But now all of a sudden, Paul looks at Silas and says, you, you're going to come with me, let's go. We're going to go on this second missionary journey here. And really, from a Barnabas' perspective, he sort of falls off. Uh, the, the table at this point. Now, I don't mean spiritually. I mean, we, through the rest of the book of Acts, the focus is really not on the work that Barnabas will end up doing in Cyprus with John Mark. John Mark will come back into the picture, but for all intents and purposes, he's kind of off the page, kind of like Peter at this point, sort of off the, off the page. And we know Peter's in you know, Jerusalem and, and given to the ministry of, the, of those that were already circumcised, the Jews. He was working to bring those to salvation to make them what we call completed Jews, if you will. Okay, so it says that, but Paul and Silas departed being commended by the brethren to the grace of God, and he went through Syria and Sicilia strengthening churches. We're going to talk about a second missionary journey just so you can see exactly where they went and what they did. All right, Antioch, he's going to make his way down. This is where he came to Jerusalem, remember? Got word, got the letter, came back up to Antioch, gives everybody the good news. Hey, you're saved by Jesus Christ alone. Now what's going to happen is he's going to sail off to Tarsus. He's going to go to Derby and Lystra or Lestra, right? So just as I'm talking, you're going to be able to see it up here as I start talking about the missionary journey. We're going to move through that through chapter 16. He's on his second missionary journey. He's going to start moving around this. So it says, then he came to Derby and Lystra and behold, a certain disciple was named there or was there named and his name was Timothy. So God does have a plan, his son in the faith that he will now meet. He meets Timothy at this point. 
And he'll become his son in the faith. As a matter of fact, we're going to read, where did he really want to go? When he got here and he meets Timothy, right at Lystra right there, he's going to want to turn around and he's going to want to go to Asia, the rest of Asia, like Ephesus. That's actually where he's going to want to go. We know he'll make it there eventually, but the Holy Spirit's going to not allow him to go the first time around, okay? The Holy Spirit's going to say, no, the timing of this. So Asia, that's not talking about China, that's Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, okay? But instead, where is he going to send him? He's actually going to send him to Europe. He's actually going to come over to Europe. He's going to come over to, to, to Greece and to the Philippi, Philippi, you know, Philippians there, okay, on his second missionary journey. And he's going to make his way over there. Hey, guess what? How many here of European descent in some capacity here? Many of us, right? Praise the Lord. Right there. All right. So then he went to Derby and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. Time out on the field. What's the problem there? Well, we've got the woman who's a Jewish woman. He had grown up, we know from the other writings of Paul, that Timothy had been raised with the scriptures from a very young age, right? The Torah and the what have you like that. So he understood that. But his father was a Greek. That's a stumbling block. As he would go into the synagogues, because we're going to read something here that's going to, you're going to go, wait a minute, pastor. Question on the field. I thought we just covered with the Jerusalem council. Nothing else needed to be added unto it. And yet, uh, Paul's going to turn around and tell Timothy, I want you to get circumcised. That sounds very contradictory. What's going on here, right? You with me? We're going to talk about that as we get to it. But the point is, as we come through here and we start to look at his missionary journey, what's going to happen is he's going to realize he's a Greek. And if he brings him into a synagogue, remember what we talked about love and how we have liberty, but we we don't want our liberty to then stumble somebody that's you know, so he's going to demonstrate love. Poor Timothy, circumcision as an adult man. All right, that's, that's a lot of love. So, <laughs> so it says, um, he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. So right around A.D. 49, the summer of A.D. 50, okay, if you're taking notes. Paul wanted to have him go down with him, and he took with him and circumcised him because Here it is. This is the reason why. Circle this in your Bible. The Jews who were in that region. He knew it didn't. Paul didn't waver in this. He didn't know that it was Jesus plus circumcision. He stood to his understanding. But he knew that the, I don't want to use immaturity, but that the potential of immaturity of the rest of the Jews in the synagogue, that if they would have gone in and Silas, or in this case, Timothy being with him, that they might have had that as a stumbling block. And what would that have done? Not allowed them to receive Jesus Christ, right? Remember, Paul's the same guy that says, hey, I'll be all things to all people. You know, I'll, I'll find a way to meet them where they are. That doesn't mean the means justify the end. That's not what Paul is saying here. But what he is saying is, wait a minute, if I know that this is gonna, if I'm gonna come over and you're, you're, you're Jewish and I'm gonna come over your, your, your house and you invite me over and we're gonna sit down and, and I know you're about to eat something that could be a stumbling block for you. Uh, you know, I'm about, you have, uh, you know, meat on the table and I say, hey, where's the butter for the bread? And you go, margarine, butter, what? You know, and, and you look at me, I'm gonna say, never mind, and I'm just gonna take the bread and take a little more water, right? And I'm gonna eat it because I don't wanna do what? I don't want to stumble my brother. I want, to, I want to demonstrate the love of Christ. But does, do I think for one minute that changes my salvation or do I think it changes the salvation for that man at the table? Of course not. But, but you see, it's about love. So just so you don't, you know, because I know people get to this point, see, see, there's a contradiction in the Bible. No, 
If anything, it communicates what Paul was always saying, and it's about the love. Do you love a brother and sister that way? For they all knew that his father was a Greek. That was why. Remember, there's small villages in this place. We're talking over here. There's small villages. They all know each other's business. Everybody knows everything. They're going to walk in and go, he's a Greek. What's he doing with you? Right? And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees to keep, which was determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So what is the decree led them? The law, right? He didn't lead the law, did he? I wanted to see how many people, if I said law, you'd go, yes. No, he didn't lead the law. What, did he, what was the decree? Remember that? The four things. Abstain from these four things and Jesus Christ alone. That's what was taught here. Determined by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. And we'll close with this, verse 5. So the churches, and what's this look like here? And I love this. Were strengthened in faith and increased in number daily. Do you see that? We see the multitudes increase. We see the strengthening of the churches. And it's the result of God moving through the Holy Spirit on the people. They were getting saved. People were coming to salvation. They were being encouraged. They were being equipped. Young Timothy, as he was going, Silas with him. He's got three. He's going to have a fourth join him in a moment. I want you to, you know, I kind of gave you a challenge last week. Remember that? And I said, come back. Who was the one that wrote that letter? Or I believe wrote that letter? Here's your challenge this week. As we come to the new building next week, right? So we'll all be excited. Who at verse, well, I may say, I may give it away. At verse 10, somebody else joins them because it says we. Who joins them? Don't say it now if you know it. Come next week, study, look at it. We're going to get a fourth that's going to join the gang. All right? Sound good?